Hello, and welcome to the AAMFT Podcast, your all-access pass to the latest news developments and thought leaders in the world of systemic therapy. We strive to relate, educate, and innovate one episode at a time. I'm your host, Dr. Eli Karam, and we're brought to you by the American Association for Marriage and Family Therapy. Our podcast explores topics that relationship-based therapists care about. In addition to featuring unique conversations and interviews with established experts, our show provides information and education on direct practice and emerging trends in the MFT profession. For more information, please visit us at aamft.org. Thanks for listening and enjoy the show. No matter what your nationality, gender, socioeconomic status, you're likely to find it difficult to talk about money. It's considered one of the most uncomfortable and invasive topics to discuss, even more than things like death or sex. Money is personal, but losing money is very personal. How we earn it, how we spend it, it's all wrapped up in pride, ego, and often shame. Some turn to hiding their transactions from their partners and spouses, a practice known as financial infidelity, which is the topic of today's AAMFT podcast and something that I think if you haven't dealt with in your practice working with couples and families, certainly it's something on the rise. And we are going to do that with a emerging expert on the topic, Megan McCoy. Let me tell you a little bit about Megan. Megan McCoy is a PhD and an LMFT, an adjunct faculty member at K-State, that's Kansas State, where she teaches courses for the Financial Therapy Certificate Program. We're going to talk all about that, first of its kind. She received a PhD in Human Development and Family Sciences with an emphasis in MFT from UGA, the University of Georgia. Her research interests focus on financial therapy and how to create more empirical evidence to support the work she has seen change so many lives in her clinical experiences. Her work has been published in the Journal of Financial Therapy, the Journal of Financial Planning, the Journal of Family Economic Issues. Dr. McCoy serves on the board of financial therapy where she serves two committees, social media marketing and special topics webinars. She'll talk about that a little today. And she has been an invited reviewer for the Journal of Financial Therapy and the Journal of Financial Counseling and Planning and the Forum for Family and Consumer Sciences. She has extensive clinical experience working with individuals, couples, and families, and is passionate as will come through in the interview. So happy to be joined by Dr. Megan McCoy on the AAMFT podcast, and we are going to talk about a topic today that is emerging in our field, and if you deal with couples, you need to know about. So more than sex, more than household chores, more than in-laws, couples fight about money. So today... We're going to talk about the concept of financial infidelity that takes on many of the same feelings and components as physical or emotional infidelity. In general, the emerging field of financial therapy, of which Megan is an expert in. So Megan, if you've listened to the show, the first question is always, we want to learn about our expert. How'd you get interested in MFT in general and then integrating finances, financial infidelity with couples therapy? Yeah. So I uh, started out always wanting to make the world a better place. And I started out as a psychology major. 
And I got, as an undergrad, a chance to work in a, a social psychology lab where we study couples. And I was like, oh my gosh, this origin story is a couple. The love you can feel when a couple is happy. That's what I want to be a part of. And so I went to uh, marriage and family therapy because I wanted to work with couples and families especially. And then I was working in the field for a couple years and I felt like I didn't have enough skills. And as a first generation college student, I didn't know that a PhD doesn't actually give you more clinical skills, that it's a research degree. So I went back to my PhD and I was like, oh, what am I doing in this PhD? This is not what I wanted. And the second ever financial therapy conference came to town. And I saw a live demonstration where someone was talking about the emotions they had around money, especially the shame and the fear. And I was like, oh my gosh, like I need this, my clients need this. And so I went on a journey and all I've done for the last decade is really explore my own financial health and find ways to teach uh, both therapists to be more comfortable with money and financial planners to be comfortable talking about emotions and making referrals. And so that's really um, what I do now. <laughs> you know, it makes sense. We talk to couples so much about their intimate life, both emotional and physical and sex. And we talk about kids like money is such a huge part of a relationship, a marriage, you think we would have training that we would know, but just like, you know, I've been in the field for 21 years and other than what I've gleaned on my own, this idea of integrating financial health into relationship health, I've, I've never had any formal training on it. Uh, yeah. So I think it is so important. So we'll, we'll talk about financial therapy in general today, but really financial infidelity. So for our listeners first, yeah. let's define that. And that is going on. Uh, how you start to educate yourself about. But let's, yeah. let's first define financial infidelity. So financial infidelity is defined as keeping a secret around money for your spouse. And just like there's a spectrum of infidelity that can be committed physically, like you can fantasize about a, uh, having an affair to actually having penetration and everything in between, same thing with financial infidelity. It can be you know, something drastic like hiding debt, or it could be something simple as like rounding down when you purchase or just a mission of talking about shopping with your partner. And the thing about financial infidelity is that it's such an understudied area because, again, mental health professionals don't tend to look at the financial side of things and financial and economics people don't tend to look at the relational side of things. So it's not very well studied. In addition, it's hard to survey and find statistics about how often financial infidelity happens. Because if you ask someone, have you ever committed financial infidelity? We're all like, no. And so the stats sometimes are super low, like 17 to 20%. But if you ask somebody, have you ever round down? Have you ever felt shame about a purchase so you just didn't tell anybody about it? All of a sudden, the rates of financial infidelity skyrocket up to something that is probably going on quite often in our world. And I think even if it's on the, the minor kind of quote unquote side of the spectrum, it can be such a sign of something be, needing to be healed either within yourself or your relationship. What do you think are the main causes of mm -hmm. this phenomenon? So I think that on the extreme side, financial infidelity is often linked with physical infidelity that you're having to pay to court someone. It also is very uh, related to addiction, paying for the addiction, hiding the addiction from others. So that's probably what you see on the more the extreme side. I think as you move down the spectrum, what you see is a lot of shame or a lack of being to ask, being able to ask for what you want. And that's why 
the minor financial infidelities are still important to work with in yourselves and with your clients because if you're having a lot of shame around your purchases, either like it would, you would feel better if you got more on top of your purchases or if you let go of that shame and if you are not able to ask for your, what you want, even if your partner might not deem it important, if you're not able to say, this is important to me and I want to buy it, that's a sign you're probably not being able to be assertive in other areas of your relationship and therefore not getting your needs met in other areas of the relationship. So on one hand, it's part and parcel correlated with another problem, another breach of trust in the relationship that costs money and you don't want to tell the partner about that behavior, whether it's a third party relationship or some other type of addiction, like you said, but sometimes it's just the ability not to advocate for yourself. And I think money is the great taboo with, with couples. Why do you think even more than sex, why do you think people are so antsy talking about money? It is funny, though, because there was like a man on the streets episode I was watching and they were asking about people's sex lives and people were going into very graphic details about their sexual behaviors on TV with no problems. And then they asked them, how much is in your bank account? And these people were like, how dare you ask me that? I would never share anything so personal. Really, I think because social media has decreased the taboo around a lot of other aspects that used to be taboo, like talking about politics or talking about sex, money might be the last remaining taboo. We're not taught how to talk about it. I did a study with uh, a couple colleagues, including Ken White at Georgia, and we found 90% of people in our survey had not talked to a single soul about money in an entire year entire year had not created financial goals with their partner, had not created a plan with their partner, had not gotten advice from friends and family on financial aspects. I think there's very few topics that we have not broached in an entire year with anything, anybody, especially a topic that we deal with every day, multiple times a day, like money. So I think that is an interesting phenomenon. <laughs> you know, it's interesting too, because I see a lot of couples in my private practice and trained couples therapists. I don't think I've ever had somebody come in saying, you know, this has been a financial infidelity. They've talked about some of the same feelings though, yeah. of being lied to, a breach of trust, being very upset. I mean, I always like framing things as MFTs and systemic thinkers do in strength and health. So like yeah. financial transparency and how do you make decisions around money and has there ever been a time money has been a problem in your relationship? But I think of all the things we assess as in an opening session working with couples and you probably do this as part of your practice too, but I don't think on most of our mm-hmm. kind of standardized assessments or opening couple interviews, we ask directly about money. I mean, we yeah. ask about every other part of the relationship. We certainly ask about uh, physical intimacy and sex. We certainly ask about other things. We don't ask necessarily about money. So right. what do you, this field of, of financial therapy, if somebody is not coming in specifically for financial infidelity or mm-hmm. for financial help, how do you suggest that, couples therapists start to kind of normalize this and assess this in their yeah. kind of routine way of working. You know, I think it's a lot like the couple presenting with communication issues. Like we know it's not really communication issues or everything is communication issues, but there's other catalysts that we are we know are hidden behind that kind of buzzword. And so a lot of times financial issues actually arise in what I see as like household responsibilities or power 
or control or autonomy. And so if you have a couple who's fighting a lot around those concepts, I promise you money's probably at the root. If they're fighting about like, I do more household duties, the underlying implication is like one of us makes more or less. And so it's not fair at this point. Or like where one of us is using power as a money to, you know, maybe be less fair in the household distribution or be more fair in the household distribution. And so I think a lot of times us as mental health professionals, there's been a couple studies that show that we're not really the most financially healthy population in and of itself. A lot of us, especially I was, are very money avoidant, have beliefs that like we should be saving the world so we shouldn't be accepting that much fees or we don't need to make that much money because we're there is meant to help the world. And so I think by getting more comfortable with our own relationship with money, we're much more equipped to be able to ask the follow-up question about household responsibility is a problem, but what? tell me more about that. Be curious around the power struggles around money and autonomy in the relationship. I agree. I think if you can tie it into the presenting problem, it's a natural flow. Oh, yeah. However, sometimes couples they have a pretty traditional gender roles Mm -hmm. where the wife is pretty trusting of the husband and how they make decisions until she found out the husband made an investment that he did not tell her about because historically they make conservative investments. This was a riskier investment. It did not go well. And he did tell her, which was good, but it did feel like a breach of trust because she trusted that he was making good financial decisions. And this was a potential investment with somebody that she didn't know in a a piece of real estate that did not go well. And they have real problems. And uh, the, the husband has a sense of frustration and also probably guilt and shame and the wife really feels like she has been lied to so this has kind of changed their financial outlook so sometimes we have situations like that how do you deal with a scenario like that where in general the couple has a good way of working and then a partner makes a different decision doesn't clue their partner in and it stirs up all these feelings yeah you know i'm going to be biased since we're uh, a, a marriage and family therapy podcast and know that i believe systemic therapy is the cornerstone to helping people and when you describe that family the circular causality between the dynamics is so abundantly clear. You know, there's a lot of blame and shame from both of them from keeping secrets. And there's this pattern of avoidance in the wife that then leads to the husband to feel like he has total autonomy, which leads to avoidance, which leads to autonomy. And so by breaking the cycle and looking at as circular causality rather than the husband being a bad guy and making decisions or keeping secret or the wife, you know, being avoidant and not wanting to participate in the financial decisions by looking at them both together and say, both of you guys need to make a change in order to have a healthier relationship together. And God forbid you ever lose your spouse or, you know, a, a passing away or divorce, you need to have awareness of your financial situation with or without him. And so that idea of both partners have a lot of work and shifting the pattern of behaviors between them is the key to that situation. I agree completely. Framing it as a cycle and moving forward, how can they collaboratively make decisions? Even if one person does more of the the day-to-day work on the financial, 
health of the couple? How is their open line of communication so both people are on board with it? And sorry me- to go on a soapbox for a second, but this sure. is so true for finances because you know we always joke about opposites attract, but the research just keeps on showing that's not true, that we tend to marry someone very like us in our political views, very like us in our religious views, very like us in all these important aspects of our life except for when it comes to money. And then all of a sudden, we actually are attracted to our opposite, that the spender is so attracted that their partner is a saver and is responsible. And the saver is so attracted to a partner that's a spender who enjoys money and doesn't stress as much. And so it's this one area where we're we're so disparate and so different. And yet it's also an area that we have no practice talking about, that really financial problems do tend to have an onion effect where we are unpacking so many layers that have never been discussed before, which gives extra work, but also extra possibilities for healing in like all these different aspects of life, which is really cool. Part of the onion too is how you get your values on money coming from your family of origin. And sometimes even if you're very similar, you're influenced by your family of origin. So, you know, I was working another couple where they are pretty efficient, but the husband is more of a saver because he grew up with a family whose parents lived above their means. And he never wants his children to experience uh, these kind of financial stressors that he had to as a young man, whereas they're at a pretty good spot now. And the wife would like to spend more when they have the ability to do that, but and she was really frustrated that he was being so restrictive, especially at a time of relative financial prosperity for them, until they created this connection of understanding kind of the deeper meaning, the dream under the conflict that he doesn't want his kids to ever worry. So having a large net is part of his security that he's able to explain that makes him a better spouse, less anxious. So that was really important for her understanding why he was being so restrictive. It is so fun to add the layer of money to genogram work and to see the beliefs we have for money that come at such a young age because so often we're not even realizing that we develop these beliefs at two. So like we don't even realize that people think differently than us. We're like, don't even understand how our partner processes it because it's been so ingrained at such a young age and then not ever discussed. And so it's it's mind-boggling to do a really good money genogram. And for anybody who's out there that's nerdy like me, there's an amazing article that by two authors named Mumford and Weeks, and they have these beautifully written questions, even if you just skim the questions that are about like, what did you love and respect about your parents' relationship with money? What are some of the things about your parents' relationship you want to leave in the past? What was your mom beautiful about in her relationship about money? And just like wonderfully worded questions that I think your listeners would really like and would help them build their first money genogram. That is an awesome idea. Uh, I have never read that, so I'll put that on my list. But they are, our listeners love tips, so that that is great, adding money to something that a lot of family therapists do in their assessments anyway. A genogram is a, is a great idea. All the Bowenian therapists, you can see how money becomes triangulated into couples' relationships a lot. Like the projection of, I feel powerless in my relationship, and you'll see that it's projected right onto that money in the genogram. Okay, here's another one couples therapists get a lot where people are spending on whatever their their vice is and they justify, hey, I work hard, 
what's the big deal and they don't tell their partner and then their partner again is either offended or worried but it becomes conflictual quickly in the sense it's maybe one of those little areas that you talked about it's it's not a major breach but they are spending and then the justification of i work hard in this relationship i deserve i i provide i deserve my whatever it is and i see that a lot about people arguing over whatever their vice is. How would you handle something like that that I think presents to a lot of couples therapists? I do a lot of like uh, pop media, you know, like journalist interviews. And it's funny how there's been such a pendulum swing in the last couple of years where it was cut out everything. Why are you spending so much on coffee to the opposite that was buy your coffee, treat yourself, (laughs) retail therapy. And you know, what we know is that if you are trying to really buy stuff to make you happy is just not going to work. Like research shows that buying things will never improve your happiness and actually may it, you know, make you sadder because materialism makes has a host of problems associated with it. So there's much better ways to self-care. Also, our brain is very wired for novelty. We love novelty so very much. So if you're doing the same retail therapy over and over again, buying the same fancy person say, this is my retail therapy, I'm telling you it's backfiring because the novelty is worn out. It'd be way better to buy one fancy coffee one week and then wait two weeks and treat yourself with nails that week and then wait two months and do something different than to get what I see is often a habit, a habitual self-care that feels empty after a while. And a lot of times if you dig in deeper and see what are you actually buying, you'll find underlying issues. Like if you're buying a lot of clothes, are you feeling insecure about your body? If you're buying a lot of, you know, makeup, are you feeling insecure about, you know, your presentation? There's other things you can think of too along this line. Yeah, you said a lot of important things there. It also makes me think of this pandemic era of which we're living in and that people are at home, they're bored and part of dealing, they get maybe they have their stimulus check. Part of dealing with their boredom is their retail therapy, you know, Amazon, uh, what have you. And certainly I know I have made more online purchases in the last year than I have probably in the last five years combined. So part of it is just how we shop now. But how do you know the line between self-care and indulging and when it becomes you're trying to fill a void? How do you help individuals and couples see that? I'm going to be a little prescriptive first and then I'll go more in like a broad lens of this. And my prescription for online shopping is that you should never check out the day you online shop. You should always wait 24 hours. And in those 24 hours, have fun daydreaming about the items you're purchasing. Like what will actually be different when you have those pillows on your couch? What will actually be different when you get that fancy TV? Whatever you're buying, just spend 24 hours digging into the details of the purchase and imagining what it's like. Because us humans are not good at noticing the details of the future, right? So you might, for instance, I'm like in love with the princess sleeve shirts, the the big poofy dynasty shirts. And there's been so many times where I've put some very outrageous princess shirts into my Amazon cart. And I'll just spend 24 hours thinking about what will it be like wearing that shirt? Wait a second, how often can I wear that extravagant shirt? Where could I actually wear that extravagant? Can I ever wear it more than once? Because everybody's going to know that shirt. And so I start digging in. And then within 24 hours, I'm like, 
Oh, well, I had fun the first few hours imagining buying that shirt. But then after 10 hours, I started to not have as much fun visualizing the wearing of the shirt. And so I'm just going to take that out of the cart and just leave the one thing that still brings me joy. And I know that's very behavioral, very prescriptive. But it's changed my life when I started doing that, as well as dividing purchases by hours I have to work. So like, I love this cashmere sweater, but is it worth three hours work? I don't think so. And so like, doing those two tricks were just like little behavioral nudges that really, really helped me. There's a lot of wisdom to that. And what you could also do, I noticed I try to do that too. Yeah. And, and sometimes these retailers must know that because if I leave something in my cart and I enter my email, mm-hmm. they will send me, oh, you can get, I, we still yeah. see you left some stuff in your cart. You got, uh, you can get oh, 10% yeah. or 15%. So they, they encourage you. But I like the idea because, you know, most of the people listening to this, they know what their clinical hour is. Yeah. What that costs and to really equate, <laughs> do I really, it's nice, but do I really need that? During that hour, not only are you also reflecting, but especially if it's a larger item, being able to talk to your partner about oh. it because that gives you time. Yeah to get your partner on board as well because it's one thing if you've justified it but if we're talking about being transparent around finances especially if it's a bigger ticket item you probably want your partner's buy-in what do you think about using 24 hours to check in with your partner yes because you know what you know i think we frame financial conversations about budgeting like it's so painful like this is terrible like how fun would it be like I'm so psyched about this and name whatever it is. These are all the reasons why. This is the joy that I'm looking forward to. This is how we can use it together. It is such a shift to be able to talk about money in not just a negative scarcity mindset, but really in like, what are our goals? What do we want to drive the pleasure out of money together? Like, what makes us happy? That's just like a shift in the conversation that can just really open doors to have the harder conversation conversations because you already had that like kind of golden ratio that Gottman talks about. You have these five fun experiences in the past where you gave each other a high five to buy little things that were in your spending plan that you could afford that the sixth time where you guys have to say, you know, I know you really want this, but I think we have to wait a couple months becomes a lot easier to do. But I love that. Yeah. Yeah. And before you go more general, one more prescriptive thing that many therapist help couples with is, you know, well, let's have a dollar amount in our relationship, like the hundred dollar rule. You don't spend a hundred dollars on yourself more without checking with your partner. And obviously if you have a larger disposable income, that could be a $200 Mm -hmm. rule or $300 rule, or even less for lower income couples, a $50 rule. What do you think about rules like that, that give couples some baseline? Uh, It still gives them autonomy, but it also gives them a baseline as far as dialoguing around when you're going to make a purchase for yourself if it goes over that limit. You know, we always talk about the difference between transparency and privacy and secrecy. You know, all three of those things have nuances. And of course, You as a human get to have some privacy, some kind of sense of autonomy, some kind of sense of this is mine. And I don't want to ever invalidate that feeling. But I think that number needs to be uh, decided on in the relationship based on two factors. One, the financial factor, like what can you guys afford to do, you know? And the second factor about why, why do you need to buy more than that without telling me? What can I do to make you feel safer to have that conversation with me when you want to 
to spend more than that? What does it mean to you to be able to buy that number? So looking and deciding that number intentionally instead of just making it kind of a blanket statement is really important. Uh, in terms of the differences, this is way back when we were talking about the differences between like, is this uh, retail therapy and it's going to bring me pleasure or is this going to be like compulsive shopping or impulsive shopping, which are slightly different. And I think the real answer is the shame afterwards. If you're feeling shame, money shame is such a real feeling and so many of us have it. If you feel shame after the purchases, something's going on. Maybe you're being too critical of yourself and we can work on that. Or maybe you are kind of going into impulsive compulsive shopping instead of just retail therapy. Now, some relationships people meet where they, couples that get together young, everything is in the same pot Mm -hmm. from the beginning. They don't have much to start with, so they're really putting it all in the same pot from the start. Other relationships, maybe a second marriage where people, one person has considerably amount of more, either income, uh, resources, or even debt. So there's a mismatch. And not one size fits all. Some couples fully merge their finances. Some couples keep them separate. And sometimes, well, let's just ask it this way. If a couple keeps their finances separate, what do you, even if it's not all merged, what do you encourage as far as how to be transparent, even if they have separate pots? Yeah. Your goals, your financial goals, for sure. Like what are we saving for? Where do we want to live in retirement? So like if you have separate pots and one of them runs out of money, like who's here? Is your pot going to be fully in retirement? Like you're just going to leave your partner in a, a cardboard box while you live in a mansion because they went through their pot faster. I mean, that I think is kind of kicking the ball down the road sometimes, unless you're very high income. I've never tell a couple they have to merge because money is so has ties to abuse as well. So we have to recognize that financial abuse is is definitely present and true for too many people. So I would never say you have to merge accounts, but I think uh, the idea of separate accounts is more a mental exercise of power than a real exercise of power because eventually you're going to have to combine at some point, whether it's through your estate planning or your retirement planning. So I'm kind of rambling here, but I think if you are having separate accounts, having a deep conversation is, is this laziness we haven't combined? Or is this a lack of trust in my partner? Or is this a lack of commitment to my partner that I think potentially we're not going to be there at the end of the day together? You know, I love what you said about tying it to the goals, because that's mm-hmm. if you can tie it to the financial goals of the couple, then it doesn't really matter if it's merged or separate as long as we're heading to the same destination. I do think, though, in experiences of working with couples that have very different financial profiles or haven't fully merged, Mm -hmm. at least knowing what that other person has is important to the partner. Uh, Even if it's not merged, knowing and being able, I always said the litmus test is being able to sit at a computer and with five or 10 minutes pull up all of your accounts so you can see all that you have, all that you owe, and there's at least a plan for that. And even if, even if it's not merged that, you know, as far as transparency, you, you have your partner's passwords, you understand, even like in my situation, my wife does a great job, does most of the, the budgeting and bill paying. I do most of the investing, but we have like a talk. If I had to, I could know how to pay the bills. And if she had to, she knows how to check the investment. So I think that's oh, another that's thing too. So even, good. even if, God even forbid, if you, have, you know, yeah. something happened. Yeah. Even if you, even if you have them divided out and that works that the other partner knows how right. to access what the other partner does. Yeah. 
let me give you a, another scenario. A, a couple has had a breach of trust at, around the money. And many times we talked about it could be an actual affair and the person is covering that spending. Mm-hmm. You mentioned drugs or alcohol. Mm-hmm. Or any kind and of addiction. Another, well, yeah, and another addiction. So a lot of questions we get around this is gambling. Gambling, which brings up guilt and shame, which many times it's not only the feelings of that, but somebody has risk and lost a significant amount of the couple's income or the family's financial security. So do you have any specific tips around gambling in order to set a boundary of that, in order to reassure partner? Because I think that coming into our practice and we're not necessarily experts on addiction or gambling, but we, the couple is in front of you and you have to deal with it. Yeah. You know, I think it's one of those times where uh, sometimes if you're really uncomfortable with addiction, it is a referral time because there are nuances to addiction that need to be resolved. Otherwise, you're kind of putting, you know, lipstick on a pig if we don't deal with the underlying addiction. Because this is something I want every listener to understand. I don't love some of Dave Ramsey's writing, but he is brilliant and he has helped so many people come from the most extreme debt to being so financially well off. So there's no financial hole that any one of you listening or any one of you listening's clients cannot climb out of. It is simply, you know, spending less than you make and everyone, if creating a plan and thinking and making some hard decisions can do that. And so I want to understand that the actual financial hole is climbable, but it can't happen until the addiction is resolved because what you'll see a lot of times with addiction is just the movement of addiction. You know, if it's not, if they're just white knuckling sober and not really in recovery, you'll see the addiction move somewhere else. For instance, I had the most wonderful client that had an alcohol addiction and he white knuckled it for his family because he loved them and he wanted to be good and where the spending went was back in the ebay days he started buying on ebay as compulsion to get the high he was missing from his addiction so to the point where he had a secret uh, storage unit to hide his ebay um, to deal with the missing of the addiction. So I think whenever you're dealing with addiction, we, we as practitioners can do so much beauty with our clients and help them, but there needs to be a, a focus on resolving that first before you can move into other layers of healing. Yeah, I'm so glad you said that. I mean, we know in our field, if we're dealing with someone with a raging alcohol problem, right. we couldn't do good couples therapy unless the person was in recovery and we may be able to do it conjointly if the person yeah. was you know, working a 12-step model or some other form of recovery, but we wouldn't, we wouldn't ignore that. It's the same thing with the gambling mm-hmm. addiction. So I'm so glad you said that. So part of when you're assessing a couple, if something like that is going on, it's yeah. framed in its financial infidelity, you have to have a plan for the addiction. And I guess part of the, one of the protective factors is at least the person realizing they have a problem because right. that, that is sometimes what we see too in this financial infidelity. The person is not Yet to the point they're in denial, they do not see it as an addictive, right. whether a gambling problem or financial thing, or hoarding you know, or hoard, of buying. Yes. All of those will all, have addictive, you know, components to it. And your eBay scenario made me think of another justification. A lot of times, partners have in a relationship. Well, you know, I'm I'm buying it at this, but I'm going to sell it at this. Yeah. Uh, another client I work with is a coin yeah. collector and was spending large sums of money on coins without fully telling his spouse, but his belief was that he could get a deal on them and sell them yeah. for a profit. This was never happening. Yeah. So 
the idea of the eBay scenario right. of trying to flip or turn also happens. Yeah. And collectors, you made me think of that oh, too. Yeah. Like co- collectors justify anything for their collection. So right. they spend large amounts of money on a collection that is very meaningful for them. But if their partner is not on board with that or it's not in the budget, it causes those same feelings that yeah. we've been talking about with financial infidelity. Have you had any experience with collectors and yes. using that as justification? Absolutely, absolutely. And to a lesser degree, I'll hear things like, you know, a partner spending too much on their hobby and saying, well, at least I'm at home. I'm not going out and gallivanting around town. I'm I'm sitting in the basement with all my, I don't know, gear for my next, I don't know, marathon or something. It's a healthy addiction, you know? And I think sometimes... If you're taking the autonomy or the decision-making away from your partner, even if it's, quote-unquote, a healthy problem, like, oh, I'm just spending money on clothes. I'm not going out to the bar with my friends. Even if it's a healthier alternative to something, you're still taking your partner's decision-making away, and that does not feel good. Okay, we've identified it as financial fidelity. Both Mm -hmm. people are committed to repairing. So now let's talk about what that looks like if you could give our listeners some skills or tips or the ideal condition if you have couples that want to fix this what are the ideal conditions to repair and what do you need to do in order to save a relationship after a financial infidelity yeah you know i am a huge fan of john gottman i'm sure all your listeners know of him and his love lab and a lot of the thoughts i have around forgiveness have come from his work And so I think a big part of the first step is figuring out how you discover the financial infidelity. It's a different process if you discovered it accidentally versus if your partner said, I'm ready to make a change. I'm ready to like apologize for this. It doesn't mean one's necessarily bad or one's necessarily good, but I think you start at a different place depending on where they are. I think recognizing the source is the next hard conversation. How did the financial infidelity happen? Was it bravado, like the story you gave with the investing mistake? You know, potentially was that you feeling overly confident or was that you feeling like you wanted to support the family more, so you had to almost gamble to make enough money, quote unquote, for your sense of what is good enough for the family? Or was it accidental, like, what do they call it? The tiny cuts? <laughs> do you remember that saying? I forgot what it is, but I like death by tiny cuts or whatever, where it was just like impulsive shopping that has gotten out of control. And then I think really it's important to have a plan moving forward. How are we going to prevent this from happening again? How are we going to deal with it when a slip up happens? How are we going to encourage ourselves to focus now on our shared goals? For the future. I love it. Now, I often think, okay, if I had more time, I don't. I would love to go back and get like a certification in financial planning or something like that because it goes so hand in hand with couple health, like in relationship and financial health are tied together. And so many couples, like I say, come in with financial stressors. So these are not fields historically that have been integrated. That's why I wanted to have you on. This idea of financial therapy oh man, I think it would appeal to so many consumers as far as potential couples. If I could get my money concerns and my communication concerns all under one house from an LMFT that has a financial background, I would love that. So I know our listeners will certainly be turned on to this. As I told you, I was interested in covering this and I had several emails. This is an emerging topic. We got to talk about it on the podcast. So 
I want you to just talk about the field of financial therapy in addition to what we've talked about with financial infidelity, what it includes. And if I'm a listener, how do I go and get trained in this or how do I get more information? Yeah, the field of financial therapy only started in 2008. So it's a really, really new field. And honestly, since it's so emergent, there are not a tons of ways to get training specifically in financial therapy. I work at Kansas State University. We have the only graduate certificate in financial therapy that is for online courses. Also, I volunteer for the Financial Therapy Association, and they are an amazing association, completely nonprofit, where they're trying to create education materials for individuals, provide resource lists. We also have webinars constantly and coffee chats where people can learn how to integrate this material. And I think it's a twofold step. You know, I think so much of financial therapy for mental health professionals is, of course, becoming literate around our finances and understanding the basic literacy. But it's not as complicated or magical as one would imagine if you're not very comfortable around finances. I think the second part of entering into financial therapy is really your self with a therapist work, understanding your biases, your beliefs, your fears around money and how that impacts how we advise our clients, how that impacts our view of our clients. I mean, I was talking to one of my amazing colleagues. He is one of the most brilliant therapists I've ever met. And he was talking about how it's really difficult for him to work with really high wealth clients because it brings up counter transference and transference issues. And I wonder how many of us, whether it's high wealth or low wealth, have biases that we've never explored before because money is so taboo in our culture, we've never even considered it being a biasy. If we don't know our own values and people get into this profession, not generally to make money they get into it because they want to help people or it's just a good fit for them in fact people that get into it to make a lot of money burn out the quickest we know so you're right how if if i'm not aware of my own or if i don't feel as a practitioner whether i'm in a agency or a private practice if if i have a hard time my own financial health how am i going to help other people with it so that's why i love things that are isomorphic in the sense that as we learn more about them it helps us as individuals and it also helps our couples so i just in general at this point in my life heading into my mid-40s start thinking more about that so naturally what i'm interested in see through the lens of when I'm doing my couples work. So I, I like learning about that stuff and it, it also resonates with the couple. So this association uh, that you volunteer with, so there's lots of good resources there for uh, MFTs that would want to learn more. Absolutely. Once you join, I know not everybody um, list is on Facebook anymore, but they have a very active Facebook group and you can kind of connect with other people and learn how are you getting more comfortable with your finances? What are some of the techniques or interventions you're using with your clients around money? I mean, there's some beautiful interventions around money. There's one called the money egg that Brad Klontz, Ted Klontz, and Rick Haler have really brought to the surface. It's based on the trauma egg, but it's a process of having your clients draw out their money memories and kind of describe the emotions that come from those money memories and how those emotions really turns into um, a motto around money, like how they approach money or how they think about money in their schemas. Um, and it's just amazing to think, learn from other practitioners who are kind of diving into something so brand new that there's so many unexplored places. And I just, I'm very passionate about it because 
like you said earlier, it has helped me so much with my clients, but more than that, it helped me so much with my own money shame, my own money fears, and it helped me so much talk to my husband about money and feel like we as a team are working towards better financial goals. You mentioned uh, Dave Ramsey earlier, and yes, he's like, even if you don't know anything about money, you know that name, much like if you don't know anything about couples, you know about John and, and Julie Gottman. It's kind of synonymous. But I think what, what those plans all have in common is, is MFTs were process experts. It's the process of couples, as you said throughout this interview, having a shared goal, having a, both a piece in it and transparency back and forth and working on the same thing towards something that benefits them both. So it's it's the process more than any of the concrete techniques or anything behind it that makes it work. So I think that's great. And you mentioned the money genogram earlier, the money egg, any other interventions or things like that, that if our listeners are, are interested, did you find very helpful in working with couples on money? You know, there's all these amazing money personality assessments out there. My absolute favorite is Brad Klontz's Klontz Money Script Inventory or shortened KMSI. If you Google it, I'm sure you'll find it right away. But in, in summary, what they say is that people tend to fit into one of four categories. I'm a reformed money avoidant individual. Money avoidant individuals tend to want to save the world, tend to think money's not important, tend to think money is like the root of all evil, and tend to feel very insecure around money. And then there is money vigilant. They really think money is important, that it's a scarcity item, so they have to kind of not hoard it, but keep it really safe and secretive. And then there's money status who believe that achieving wealth is their way of proving that they're a good person, that their net worth is equal to their self-worth. And they need these like representations, like the nice person, the nice car. So other people see them as a good person. And then there's money worship that just like have this magical thinking about like people who have money are somehow different than them. Or if I had more money, I would automatically be happy. And oftentimes we're not married to the same money scripts that we are. And, and, and I think that we project and do mind reading around our partner, around their beliefs around money that are often wrong. I love the actor observer. Have you guys, have you ever heard of that one? The actor observer bias that we all do? Yeah, but tell our listeners. Okay, so the actor-observer bias is this funny thing that we do where we tend to believe that other people's actions are their personality, and we tend to understand the context of our behaviors better. So I always use this example. But if I, I'm a terrible driver and I'm late for things a lot. And so if I tailgate in my head, I'm like, oh, I hope everybody knows I'm late to pick up my kids at school and I'm, they're going to be worried if I'm not there on time. And so I hope they recognize that I'm not a bad person. I'm just tailgating. But if someone tailgates me, I'm like, why didn't your mother raise you better? Like you are a bad driver. And I immediately assign all these personality things to them. And we do the same thing with our partner. Like if we're on the phone, when they come home and we don't look up, it's because we're working on a really important email for work. But if we're talking to them and they're on their phone, we do the same where they're like, oh, you never pay attention to us enough. And we do that with our money beliefs, our money patterns and our money personalities where we're like, you're so stingy because you don't care about me enough. When really, if you unpack it, it's like you said earlier, a fear, a safety issue, a desire to want to make their future self safer, not that they're stingy or trying to hurt you. 
And when you're connected and you have a transparent dialogue, you're more likely to give your partner the benefit of the doubt. But when you're disconnected and you feel disenfranchised or you start scorekeeping, which people do in general in the relationship, but they certainly do it around money. You spent this, I can spend this. Then it it breaks down very quickly. I, I can't agree more. So I also want you to plug your program at K-State, because I do think as an MFT educator, and we have lots of co-MT educators listen to the podcast, as well as students. I mean, I would love uh, to get, if I was a student, or even if I was an emerging professional, I had been practicing a while, I'd love to get some of this education that we're just skimming the surface on today. Talk about the certificate program at K-State and what somebody gets in that. Oh, and so for all your listeners who are still in school, do your best to try to get into your intro to personal financial planning or whatever financial well-being course that your school offers, even if it's an undergrad class, just getting basic literacy around, you know, what's a Roth IRA? Why would that be helpful to get it? What is uh, my options if I have debt? You know, just simple things like, what makes up my credit score? It's real thing. It's not magic. <laughs> Just five things that make up your credit score. Those little literacy things can transform your life, even if you never bring it into your client's office. So absolutely, if you are still in a program, find a way to squeeze in one additional elective from your business school or even many of the financial planning courses like I teach are in human development and family science courses. They're family econ courses, so it might be in that section. Anyway, at K-State, our graduate certificate is four main classes, but for our mental health professionals, we do require that financial literacy course if you haven't taken it. So you would take that as the, like the prereq. And then it is intro to financial therapy, the origin story, understanding the transference issues that arise when you're doing financial therapy. Then we talk about the second class is money and relationships. And we dive into things through the money genogram. We look at the literature, the research on couples dynamics around money, the dynamics around gender, the dynamics of parent-child education around money. What are you teaching your kids around money? Then the third class is financial therapy theory and research, where we go over a great book by uh, Christy Archuleta, Brad Klontz, and Sonia Luter called Financial Therapy Theory and Research. And they have chapters on all the different mental health theories that have been applied to financial work. And so, for instance, I applied narrative therapy to financial work. And each chapter kind of does that and gives really good case anecdotal stories. that I think your listeners would really receive it well. And then our final class is called Behavioral Finance, which is about those nudges I talked earlier about understanding how to use our brain's natural wiring to be smarter around our money. Think of it as very like behavioral intervention. One that kind of was pertinent to the idea we were talking about earlier with the shared counts is there's a great behavioral finance trick where you don't just have one savings account. You start to create multiple savings accounts with names that will be evocative for you. So it's not like savings account one. It is like Italy trip with, you know, your partner's name 2023. And then when you sacrifice the Starbucks or you sacrifice the hobby or the collectible to put money into it, it's not just for this like, I have to sacrifice my needs for a partner. It's not. You're not sacrificing anything. You are putting money into your future goals, your future plan, your future desires, and becomes less painful. And so that's behavioral finance in a nutshell. That's wonderful. Are you finding that you're getting people that while they're still in their 
master's training or are you getting people that already have the L and they're coming back after their license to get the certification? So it's a tremendous majority of our students at K-State are financial students because it's part of our, in our financial planning department. I would say all the mental health professionals that are in the class, which is a smaller percentage, have been licensed and are saying, this is an additional skill I would like. I think the Financial Therapy Association does a really good job, though, of providing all these very student pricing things that in the Financial Therapy Association, you'll see a lot more students because to become a member, if you're a student, it's only $50 a year. That makes the webinars only $5 and then lots of things free because of that. So if you're a student, I would recommend definitely doing the Financial Therapy Association, but I hope all your listeners consider joining. Great. And I have one last question for a more seasoned clinician. If obviously to be able to talk about couples and their financial issues is in our scope of practice, it may not be in our scope of competence without this training. I'm wondering just how you market if somebody is marketing their private practices, their services, what's your advice to that as far as how to market their ability to work with couples around money, maybe on their website or in their promotional materials? Right. So the Financial Therapy Association is trying or is creating a certificate. It's called Certified Financial Therapist Level 1 and eventually Level 2 to try to help consumers stay protected and make sure that practitioners, again, have that scope of competence that uh, have done not only the financial literacy work, but have done that self of the therapist work that's really necessary to dive into this. I think if you're not ready to do a deep dive into education, I would be very careful to call yourself a financial therapist. But I hope every single practitioner listening is way more open to talking to their clients about their financial stress and about their financial conflict. Because I promise you, every one of your clients has financial stress, whether it's actual, like they actually don't have enough money, or it's perceived financial stress because COVID really created this ambiguity about our financial future that has caused a fear of financial future in a lot of people, even if they have enough money. All great tips. The other thing I think of, oh, it's helped increase my knowledge. You know how we have referral sources. So we have client system could be working with a school system. Uh, they could be working with a psychiatrist or an occupational therapist. And many times they're working with a financial coach or a wealth advisor. Sometimes when we coordinate treatment, we, we'd never think to coordinate if they're having money problems so we can increase our understanding to coordinate um, with a financial planner in the system. But I found most times when I learn about other professions, it's because somebody has been patient enough to educate me. So I have a, a financial, it's a business coach who turned me on to uh, this financial planning. I've learned a lot just by listening to them too. So I'm wondering also other people outside of the association that you collaborate with that have taught you a lot where maybe our listeners could think about learning from someone local. Yeah. You know, just like we have so many different mental health designations, I think it's really helpful to know the different financial professionals. And so just like the differences between MFT and clinical social work and LPCs, it's not exact science. The same thing for financial professionals. But the main three umbrellas of financial professionals are financial counselors. And these are individuals who are very good at debt management, at creating a budget, at creating plans. Then there's financial 
financial planners, and if they have a CFP designation, they're looking at your whole financial picture, not only creating a budget, but also looking at your retirement plans, your estate planning, and so on. And then we have financial coaches, and the financial coaches are going to be very goal-oriented and focus on what are your financial goals and how can I help you receive them. All three of these have different designations that go through them. All of them tend to work with different socioeconomic status, with financial planners tending to work with middle and higher worth, whereas financial counselors tend to work with middle and lower income. But just knowing that you can search for a CFP, which is a financial planner, or a uh, financial counselor, an AFC, knowing that you can find those in your local community and that I promise you they want to work with you. Because I can tell you when you talk about money, it brings up emotions. And financial counselors, planners, and coaches are always looking for a referral source for their clients. So you'll be able to have a bi-directional relationship where you're both making referrals to each other and learn so much from each other. So I highly recommend Yeah, it's the gift that keeps giving. Yes. Scratch my back, yeah. I scratch yours. So I have learned so much today. This has been oh, extremely okay. helpful. If listeners want to continue the dialogue with you, what is the best way? To oh, yes. You are definitely welcome to email me. My email is Megan McCoy, spelled just like my name in one thing, at KSU, period, E-D-U. K is in Kansas, S is in state, and U is in university, dot E-D-U. Eli, back with you, bringing to a close another informative installment of the AAMFT podcast. I learned so much. Thank you, Megan. Great resources given throughout the interview, and I appreciate your passion. And I really think, as I was saying during the interview, one of those skills that goes hand in hand to working with couples, therapists in their professional development, I also believe are more likely to learn skills that also apply to their own life. So financial management, even if you don't have financial infidelity in your past, is certainly a good skill for us all to have as emerging professionals as far as the business of psychotherapy and managing our own relationships. So I really think what we were talking about during the podcast are essential skills for us all to know. Talking about essential skills and things for us all to know, AMFT is breaking ground once again. You've heard me mention in the last couple of weeks, we're getting closer to November 10th through 12th which is the first ever Systemic Family Therapy Conference, the most comprehensive event ever for systemic therapists. AMFT is sponsoring it. As I said, it is the first one ever, and it's completely virtual in 2021. You can find out more and register by going to amft.org conference. Again, this three-day conference features workshops focusing on enhancing the systemic thinker, developing cutting-edge clinical skills and training, and integrating MFT values into vital community and institutional systems. Bringing together attendees and presenters from every continent in the world, and because it's virtual, we're eliminating barriers to access, building our community, and strengthening the profession to make a worldwide systemic impact. Great speakers, Adrian Blow, my colleague from Michigan State, and I will be presenting on our Common Factors work. I have some exciting news to break there before I break it on the podcast on Friday the 10th. But I encourage everybody, whether you're young in the profession, a student or more seasoned, the technology platform that AMFT uses is very user-friendly. 
there's going to be so much good information available in that three-day period. So again, the Systemic Family Therapy Conference, November 10th through 12th. Be there. And we'll hope you'll be here twice a month, every time we drop a new installment of the AMFT podcast on Fridays. And if you can't wait, another two weeks you can always go back to where you find your favorite podcast i'm partial to apple podcast you can go to google play spotify and you have three seasons of the movers and shakers pioneer interviews the people that have shaped the practice of systemic therapy as well as hot topics like today financial infidelity a good mix of both Uh, we're so happy the feedback we have been getting lately Uh, many accredited programs use our podcast in their curriculum, but I've also heard from seasoned practitioners that drop me a line and say they are enjoying it and still adding tools to the toolkit by listening to the show, which is really music to my ears. If you want to get in contact with me, you can send me an email, eli at northstarcounselingcenter.com. Also check me out elicarum.com and you see all the things that I'm doing professionally and promoting the profession of MFT, Systemic Family Therapy. You can also follow the conversation on Twitter. I'm at Dr. Eli Live. The AMFT is at the AMFT. We'd love to hear from you. Until next time, my friends, stay systemic.